Uh, can we throw the scripture reading up there, please? Let me just read this for us. Uh, he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Uh, some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hands. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. Amen. Amen. Uh, I blame Zach, Angie, uh, waking up at 5.45 every morning, which is, sounds terrible. Uh, my children are pretty much grown, so I've blocked that season out of my memory. Um, but anyway, welcome to New Mercy Palisades Church. Uh, my name is Key. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm going to be delivering the talk today. But before we get into the sermon, um, one quick thing about the clubs. So we messed up on the form last week with the clubs. We had the list of clubs, but we didn't have a field for the names. So people checked which clubs they wanted to be a part of, but we don't know who they were, right? Um, so for the three people who did it during that Sunday, please, if you can fill out your form again, we're not trying to ignore you, we just messed up on the form, but we fixed it pretty quickly. After three entries, everyone else was, we had to, uh, was able to put their names down. So, Okay, that's it. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us real quick. Father, we, we ask for your grace this morning. Um, we're here to he hear from you, uh, not from me. Uh, we're here... Uh, with our hearts before us, we pray that you'd soften them and uh, do a work this morning. Uh, as our brother, Pastor Josh, uh, shared, you know, every opportunity we come before you is an opportunity for your spirit to work. And we pray that's what would happen. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. Okay, so we are uh, continuing uh, our series titled Behind the Crown, where we're looking at the, the life of David. Uh, and the reason why we chose David is because we believe his body, uh, not his body, <laughs> his life uh, embodies uh, our theme, uh, Come Awake, very well. Uh, the theme for our church this year is Come Awake. And AWAKE is an acronym, which is alive, walking, activated, known, engaged. And we believe David really uh, embodies those qualities of faith very well. Uh, and not in, a very, not in a simplistic way, but in a, in a very three-dimensional way. David is a very three-dimensional three character when you read about him in the Bible. Uh, so last week, we kicked off the series by looking at the story of David and Goliath, a very famous story, and we went in-depth uh, into that. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a scene that comes a bit later in David's life, uh, but before he actually becomes king. So we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 24 today, and uh, why don't we just dive right in? Okay, let, let me start with the story. Uh, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Now, let me orient you a little bit as to where we are uh, in the story. So for various reasons, um, God has decided to replace Saul, who's the first king of Israel, with David. Okay, now obviously this does not go over well with Saul. 
right? And so he's just mad with jealousy, uh, and he's pretty much bent on killing David. And so David, what he does is he flees into the wilderness, and he spends the next several years just running away from Saul, who's been hunting him down. Uh, and that's basically where we are in, in, in the story, in, in this text. Now, if you read the chapters uh, leading up to today's text, one of the things that's become very obvious is that Saul has become extremely unstable, right? And that's putting it mildly. Uh, he's basically just cons- completely consumed with uh, trying to kill David. In fact, uh, over the course of trying to hunt David down, Saul has murdered 85 innocent priests because he thought they were siding with him. He even tried to spear his own son, Jonathan, uh, for helping David escape. Uh, and in today's text, we see that he has taken 3,000 of his best soldiers, valuable resources, to hunt down just this one man. You know, Saul's men, who were actually elite, in, in the Hebrew, actually, where it says able young men, what's translated as able young men, in the original Hebrew, it says chosen, the choice, the best, the best uh, of his fighting soldiers. Saul's men outnumbered David's ragtag of men five to one, okay? So it's very clear. Saul is obsessed. He's gone mad. He's clearly not thinking straight. So David, again, has been on the run, uh, and he and his entourage uh, have hidden themselves in this place called En Gedi. And Getty. Saul's intelligence network has basically uh, figured out where, where David is, is hiding. Uh, and Getty is actually, uh, as you see in the map up there, it's on, it's on the western shore of the Dead Sea, uh, and it has very high cliffs uh, and uh, various networks of, of caverns. Uh, and I don't know if, if you guys know what ibex are, right? They're, they're these wild goats that, uh, it's a wild goat species that lives on high cliffs, right? Uh, there are ibex still there to, to this day, which is why um, in the Bible it says the crags of the wild goats. Uh, another interesting fact is the Dead Sea Scrolls were actually found uh, in the caverns in, the, in this region. And these caverns, are, are when, when, they, when they saw them, they're, they're very sizable. So you can hide a, um, a pretty big fighting force in them if you wanted to. Uh, let's continue with the story. He, Saul... Uh, came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Now, I want you to picture this scene with me for a second. So you have David and his men. Okay, they're deep in the recesses of, uh, of a, in the dark recesses of a cave, right, in the cavern, hidden very well. And, you know, they're probably resting or something like that. Uh, but then one of the men hears something. They hear something, right? So all of a sudden, everyone's really tense. 
and then slowly they start hearing footsteps approaching the cave. You know, they hear the, the crunch of the gravel as, as these footsteps uh, approach the, uh, the cave. Now, at this point, they're uh, on really high alert because if it's what they think it is, they're in for the fight of their lives, right? So they're really tense right now. But as a figure emerges in the light of the entrance, you guys, if you've ever been in a cave, when the light of the entrance, you can see kind of the silhouette of the person. As, as this figure emerges and they, this person comes into the cave, they see that it's Saul, right? The guy who's been hunting them, hunting them down all these years, it's Saul. Uh, and then Saul, what he does, you know, he's coming in from the light into the dark, his eyes are probably adjusting, he probably can't see that well. He turns around, uh, he takes off his weapon and, you know, whatever else he needs to take off. And then he squats down. And then David's men start hearing very familiar sounds. Uh, and what they realize is Saul is taking a dump. Right? Uh, and it's funny because in the Hebrew, it actually says he was covering his feet, uh, which is a euphemism uh, for that. Hebrew has very fun euphemisms. Uh, but anyway, uh, when your soldiers in, in the Israeli army, uh, you, you took a dump outside of the camp. So you went uh, quite a distance away because you don't want to be near that filth. Now, when the men see this, right, they're, David's men, when they see this, they're in shock. I mean, this man who's, who's basically been on a murderous rampage, right, trying to take their lives, it's like he's being offered to them on a silver platter, right? And so they turn to David, and they're like, look, we don't know much, but this, this is clearly a God thing that's happening right now. Uh, and in fact, in the text, the men actually start quoting prophecy. They're like, David, God prophesied that this was going to happen, so you know what you got to do, right? The problem is, there is no trace of this prophecy anywhere. So either they're engaging in some creative theology, as one commentator puts it, or they're just making crap up. <laughs> because they know they're never going to get an opportunity like this ever again. Okay, and so they just want to make sure that David takes advantage of it. Because they're really excited. They, the end is near, according to you know, the situation. So David, what he does is he sneaks up behind Saul, uh, and I imagine, you know, as the men are watching him intently, I imagine them holding their breath like, do it, do it, right? They're like, yes, it's going to be over soon. And then they see David, and he hesitates. And instead of going for the neck to try to take Saul out, they see David turning downward toward the robe, okay, which is probably lying on the side, and he just cuts off a corner of the robe, and then he sneaks back into the shadows with his men. Now, the text says that after David does this, his conscience was stricken. Okay, and we'll talk about what that's all about in a bit when I get to the takeaways part of the sermon. But one thing you can be assured of at this point is that David's men were furious. The text actually says that uh, David had to rebuke them sharply meaning the men were probably really upset and that it took a lot of work for David to talk them down. And this makes sense. And I mean, these guys literally put everything on the line for David and he just squandered the best opportunity they've ever had to end this thing. So they're really pissed off. Okay, let's continue. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my lord, the king, 
When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hands on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hands. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Now, from a a purely tactical standpoint, this is a huge blunder on uh, David's part because he's just revealed his location to his enemy. Uh, But, you know, as human beings, we don't always make the best decisions when we're emotional, right? Which David clearly was very emotional here. Now, it's actually hard to figure out exactly what David was thinking at this point. Uh, But what I suspect is that, you know, after having been on the run for all these years and nothing changing, he's probably really tired. Uh, And after probably sensing God doing something here in this moment, right, as his path and Saul's path were brought together in a very unlikely way, he probably sensed something there. Remember, David was a very spiritually sensitive person. And then finally, with his conscience being stricken, all of that together probably led, uh, led David to feel like, you know what, maybe it's time to change strategy. Maybe it's time to try diplomacy. If there is ever a time to try it, it's now, given what I have in my hand right now. So he calls out the saw, who's probably a good distance away at this point. Remember, David is not stupid, right? He bows down and he prostrates himself, meaning his face is on the ground. He's basically, his entire body is on the ground. He calls Saul his lord and his king. Uh, later, he calls him his father, right? He doesn't blame Saul, but he blames his advisors. That's very wise of David to do that, right? And then he shows Saul the piece of the robe that he cut off and that he could have killed him. But he didn't because he's not his enemy. Okay? He never was. That's what David was trying to convey to Saul. And I imagine at this point, right, when David shows him the piece of cloth, I imagine Saul looking down at his robe and seeing that missing patch and him just being in shock because it dawns on him what could have happened. Okay, and then David continues and he says, you're the king, Saul, and I'm just a dead dog. I'm a flea. I'm a servant. I'm a waste of your time. I hear the self-abasement there by David. I mean, this is, the diplomatic skill on display here is amazing, right? So Saul hears this and he responds. And everyone who's heard this story passed down through the centuries, they're all holding their breath because they're like, how is this guy going to respond to David? And this is how it goes. 
When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my, fam- from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Talk about a dramatic change in tone for Saul. I mean, he's been breathing bloody murder for years. But it seems like what David said to him had a profound effect on him. It's like he he snaps out of his madness. Now, the reason Saul initially says, you know, is that your voice, David, is probably because he's a good distance away at this point. Now, notice how he responds, right? Saul calls David his son, which he actually is. He's a son-in-law because he gave him uh, his daughter to marry. Uh, And then Saul starts weeping. And actually, I imagine Saul just sobbing his eyes out. See, all of this stuff has just been pent up for years for him. You know, the kingdom being taken away from him tragically. Just the massive failures of his life. All that's probably just all being released in this moment. And it probably dawns on him. David has just been his scapegoat all these years. And you know, my educated guests having struggled with jealousy at times, right? We've all struggled with jealousy at times. My educated guess from having struggled with jealousy at times is that when you're in a jealous frame of mind, you're not rational, right? And you just lash out at whatever you can lash out at, right? Whatever you can blame. Saul probably didn't know what else to do. I mean, he was just desperate to try to change something about his future. And so what he does is he focuses all of his energy on the one tangible thing that he feels like he can change, that he can blame, which is taking the life of the person who embodies his end. That's the one thing he thinks he can change, to change the course of his future. So he attacks that. But what David says to Saul snaps him out of all of that, snaps him out, out of all of that, uh, at least in the moment. And Saul, he admits his sin and, the, and all the wrong that he's been doing to David. He acknowledges David as the next true king, and then he asked David for a promise of mercy. Uh, the ancient Near East practice during that time was, if you come into power, you exterminate the descendants of the previous king. But David promises he won't do that. And he actually, if you read the, the, the future history of David, he keeps that promise. Okay, let's get into the takeaways. And I only have two takeaways for us today. Number one, as believers... What do we do with the opportunities presented to us in life? Okay, what do we do with the opportunities presented to us in life? So when you look at the situation that David is, is in with Saul, Saul literally right, has his pants down, completely exposed to David, like he's being served up on, at, uh, on a platter. When you look at that situation, it's hard not to think that God has something to do with this. Right? I mean, to David's men, it's very clear that this is the hand of God. 
is very clear. Okay? And from what we can tell, David, at least initially, thought the same thing. So he sneaks up behind Saul, uh, ready to finally bring all of this to an end, but then he changes his mind. He doesn't kill him. He just cuts off a piece of his robe and then comes back. And then in the next word, verse, as we read, it says that David's conscience was stricken. Why was his conscience stricken? Because he realizes that he almost committed an act that he knows deep in his heart is something that God wouldn't want him to do, which is murder someone that's completely helpless in cold blood to gain power for himself. Okay, and this is not just someone. Okay, this is the current king of Israel who was anointed by God. Okay, this is David's king. Now, I know, you know David knows that he's going to be the next king. You know, like I said at the beginning of the sermon, God is in the process of taking the kingship away from Saul and giving it to David. And the prophet Samuel himself already anointed David as the next king. But one thing that David realizes in this moment is that it's not up to him to accelerate the process. He has no right to murder the current king to make his transition to the kingship faster. No matter how much this opportunity looks like the hand of God, David knows that his actions must be informed by more than just appearances and circumstance. Just because an opportunity presents itself doesn't automatically mean it's God and that we should take it. I mean, yes, this particular opportunity was very unlikely, and he probably would never get an opportunity like this again. The opportunity seemed like it had all the earmarks of God's miraculous providence. But what David knows is that what you do with any opportunity that's given to you is that it must always be informed by what you know about the character of God, not by just what it seems like to you. And what David knows about the character of God from all the years that he's walked with God is that this is something that God would not want him to do. So no matter how much it looks like a God-given opportunity, no matter how much his men presented to him and fabricated a prophecy out of thin air and pressured him, David stood his ground. This is why it's so essential for us as Christians to wake up to the character of God, so to speak. See, if we want to be able to navigate the opportunities presented to us over the course of our lives, and if we want to make wise decisions within those opportunities, decisions that align with the heart and the character of God, we need to grow in our knowledge of him. We need to learn what his character is like. We need to learn what his heart is like, what his personality is like. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that we need to learn God's love language. God does have a love language if you read the Bible, and that's another sermon for another day, but he does. You know, in order for me to learn my life, my, life, my wife's love language, I had to spend a lot of time with her to get to know her, to discover the things that moved her heart and brought her joy. She's not just a generic female. No, she is Rala. She has a very distinct personalities, longings, and needs, and desires. The only way that we are going to learn what moves God's heart and what he wants us to do in any given opportunity is by walking with him. 
by learning what's he's re- what he's revealed about himself in the Bible, by conversing with him in prayer. That's how you get to know people, through conversation. And by putting into practice what he teaches. I, I said this in another, another sermon. It's oftentimes after you obey the teachings of God, the teachings of Jesus, that you realize, oh my goodness, this is why he says to do this. You discover the wisdom, the thinking behind what he teaches when you actually do it. Now, I know some of us in here, we're like, oh, I know the character of God. I know the character of God. A lot of Christians are like, God, God is like this. God would do this and this and that, right? And, you know, whenever a lot of Christians, you know, I watch them in the media and even the conversations that I have with people, whenever they say God is like this or God would do this, I look at them and I'm like, that's actually not what the Bible says that God is like or that God wants. Basically, what a lot of us, done, a lot of us have done is we've, we make God's, char- God's character support our current beliefs. Right? We, we basically fabricate a God that believes everything we believe. You know what that is in the Bible? That's idolatry. That's not a God. You're not learning the character of God. You're forming a God from your own character. Brothers and sisters, only by walking with God will we truly be able to learn his heart and his character. And only when we know his heart and his character will we be able to discern what he wants us to do in life. Otherwise, we're just going to end up becoming victims to the whims of circumstance. You know, if we're not anchored in God, we're constantly being whipped back and forth by appearances, right, and by circumstances and by trends and by the shifting of the cultural winds. Oh, I guess I should do this because that's what the circumstances seem to say. Oh, but now the circumstances have changed. Maybe I need to do this instead. Oh, I think this is what God's want. God, you know, we just go back and forth. In fact, if we're being honest, so much of what we decide and do in life is affected, is affected by just our moods, right? You know, I go through hundreds of different moods in a day. I, you know, sometimes I try to watch my moods during the day. I'm like, I am crazy. My moods are everywhere. Hundreds of different moods during the day. If we let our moods and how we feel in the moment dictate our decisions rather than what we know about how God wants us to act, we would be yelling at people half the time because half the time, half the day, we're probably irritable. Right? We'd be succumbing to temptations left and right with the ebb and flow of our desires and so on. Now, some of you are listening to this, you're like, oh my God, that's me. I want us to be really honest about this. Think back to how you behave during any given day, okay? Any given day during the week, think back to how you behave. How much of what you do do you justify because of the mood that you're in? Oh, I did that because I'm tired. Oh, I did that because I'm stressed out, it's okay. Or because I'm hungry. And how much of what you do do you do because you know this is what God wants you to do despite the mood that you're in? Which of those is it in your day-to-day life? Are you kind despite being really hungry? I know that's hard for a lot of us, but you can do it. Can you do that, right? Are you patient despite being stressed out? Are you grateful despite having a hard day? You know, I am sure that David was feeling pretty moody after having been chased by Saul all these years. I'm sure he was stressed out of his mind and exhausted 
especially because his men were probably pressuring him every day. When is this going to end? When are you going to stop this? Right? He's probably stressed out of his mind, yet he refuses to let his mood dictate his actions here. Rather, he controls himself by what he knows about God. You know, in the Bible, one of the key phrases that's used to describe David is that he is a man after God's own heart. Which means God's heart and character is the through line that kept David anchored in his life. Even when he messes up, which David does, he messes up pretty seriously a couple times. Even when he messes up, he repents because of what he knows about the heart of God. The question I have for us here today is, does that describe us? How much does God's heart factor into your politics? A lot of people are like, you need to keep politics and religion separate. No, if God is the bottom of reality, God should inform your politics, the love of God and the truth of God and things like that. How much of God's heart factors into your politics? How much does God's heart factor into the way you treat people at work? How much of God's heart factors into how you spend your money? Now, I know there are certain circumstances and opportunities in life where it's hard to discern what God would want, right? Am I supposed to move to this town or that town, right? Do I take this job or that job? Am I supposed to marry this person? How am I supposed to serve the church? You know, which charity do I give to, right? Personally, um, I think a lot of those situations, God actually gives us the freedom to choose, and he'll incorporate whatever we choose into his will, okay? God's grace is big enough to do that. But also, I think the struggle that we have at times is that we reduce a lot of decisions down to morality, right? And if we don't see a clear good or bad, we're like, what do we do? What am I supposed to do? Let me propose this. God is a big God, which means he has an extremely robust personality, there are longings that he has. There are desires that he has that you can only discover by getting to know him. Not everything that God desires can be reduced down to a moral decision between bad and good. Sometimes it's just something that God wants because that's the way God is. And if you're growing in God, sometimes where there seems to be no good or bad decision, you'll still feel the leading of the Holy Spirit toward one thing because you've learned the character of God beyond just good and bad. Okay, and you only learn to discern these kinds of things as you grow in the knowledge of God's heart. Okay, takeaway number two, and I promise this one's shorter. Um, notice how David uses his power in today's story. So Saul, right, despite the fact that his power is declining, right, he's still a formidable enemy with a significant military at his disposal. He has a lot of power. And he's basically just been flexing that power as he's been hunting David down. Okay, so that's been the primary power dynamic up to this point in the story. But now David finds himself with the roles reversed. David finds himself in a position of absolute power over Saul. I mean, Saul is completely vulnerable. He's completely unaware. David, literally with the flick of his wrist, with a knife, he can end Saul's life. But David doesn't do that. Instead, what David does is he refuses 
to exercise his power. And he spares Saul's life. He shows him mercy. David gives to Saul what Saul up to this point has absolutely refused to give to David, which is mercy. Let me start by saying this. As a Christian, your relationship to power is exceedingly important. The way you handle power, okay, the way you handle the power that God has given you, okay, whatever that power looks like, the way you handle that power will indicate the extent to which you understand the heart of God. The way you handle power reveals how much your faith has taken root in your life. Now, some of you are like, well, I'm not in a position of power, Pastor King. I'm not like David, so this doesn't pertain to me. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. You exercise power every single day of your life. Every time you say something or do something or do any kind of action, you are exercising whatever power you have for ill or for good. The question we need to ask is, does the love of God and love of neighbor control our use of power or does something else? That's the question. So, the way you treat uh, waiters in a restaurant, the way you treat employees at a department store, the way you treat people that you manage, say, if you're a manager at work or if you're a boss, the way you talk to customer service reps on the phone, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, how much Does caring for those around you and how much does advancing the teachings of Jesus factor into how you use your power in those areas? You know, for most people, power, whether we'd like to admit it or not, is all about advancing numero uno, right? That's how Saul was using his power here, to advance himself, to protect his own interests. But here's the problem. If the advancement of the self is the operating center for your use of power, more often than not, you will find that the power you exercise will end up dehumanizing others and bringing disintegration into their lives. That's where you're going to find. You actually see it very clearly in Saul's life, but you probably also see it in yours, right? When you go to a restaurant and you tip poorly because you're like, you know, I don't need to tip them well, you know, this is my money. That's less money for them to have food on their table. When you gossip, you know, when you are in a place of, when you can gossip about someone, you're in a position of power. They're not there. You have information that you can disseminate to really do damage to people, whether you realize it or not. That brings disintegration into any community. I've seen it destroy communities. When you treat people with contempt, when all your actions are focused on your own needs and your own perspectives, right, you can see why living this way diminishes flourishing around you rather than increasing it, right? You know, I have a friend who actually works at a call center because it's difficult getting any job right now for this person, right? Working at a call center, you know what he told me? He told me recently he's been having having severe panic attacks before he goes to work because of the way people talk to him. They treat him like he's an artificial intelligence rather than a human being. How do we as Christians behave in those scenarios? We are in a position of power. But here's the thing. When you use power like David does, 
right? Look at the way David uses power in today's story. What does it do? It brings flourishing. Lives are saved by what David does. Futures are preserved. David's men and Saul's men learn a lesson in discernment and mercy and self-control and wisdom, which is all going to add flourishing to their lives. David's kingship is found on integrity instead of murder and so on. In fact, and this was really powerful about this text, the way David uses his power here is so stunning to Saul that it wakes up Saul from his madness and it serves as a mirror for Saul's life. When Saul sees what David has done, how David restrained his power to spare Saul and how he actually made himself vulnerable to Saul, it confounds Saul. People don't normally use power like this. People don't normally give up power like this. And it makes Saul take a good look at himself. And he compares himself. And he hates what he sees. You are more righteous than I, Saul says. Saul is baffled by David's usage of, usage of power. And it changes him. Brothers and sisters, how you use and how you restrain your power it can be transformative in the lives of others. Now, David, he is an imperfect man. He eventually, later on, after he becomes king, he uses his power to abuse people, right, with the whole thing with Bathsheba and Uriah. We'll get to that sometime in the future. But there is one person who came in history who used his power perfectly. And we all know his name, right, Jesus. You know how he uses power? He uses power to heal people. He uses power to protect people, to fight for people, to restore people. And then finally, as we know, he uses power, or he restrained his power to die. You know what's interesting about Jesus? At any point along his life, he could have used his power and just said, forget all this. <laughs> I'm not going to take all this crap from you people, right? You guys are spitting in my face. You're crucifying me. He could have been like, damn it all to hell, right? I'm just going to use my power and flex and kill everybody. He could easily have done that. Actually, there's a scene where um, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Peter, uh, and he's about to get arrested, so Peter attacks one of the soldiers, and Jesus tells him to stop. And he says to Peter, Peter, don't you realize I can call a whole bunch of legions of angels to fight for me right now? I could do that if I wanted to. But if I did that, then the scriptures wouldn't be fulfilled. And you know what he's saying there? He's saying, if I use my power and flex my power to serve myself and protect myself right now, what's going to happen is I'm going to lose you. The reason why he restrains the use of his power is because he wants to save us. The reason why he restrains his power and goes to the cross is because he knows when he goes to the cross that our sins are going to be paid for and that he is going to gain us for eternity. To the degree that you get that into your heart, what Jesus did with his power, how we restrained it to save us, to that degree will you see yourself using power in a similar way. Um, how are we doing on time? We're okay? Can I tell one story? Is that okay? One story? Okay. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, he has, I, I mean, I share this fairly often, he has a story of a media executive, right? And... Um, Somebody under him had, uh, and this is a true story, had 
messed up pretty badly. Uh, and the person should have been fired. But what the media executive did was he goes into a meeting, uh, and in the meeting, all the higher-ups are like, hey, what happened? How did we mess up so badly here? And the media executive goes, um, it was my fault. I didn't train her. You know, let's give her another chance. You know, she's still young. The job, let's do this. Uh, and they decided, okay, well, we'll trust you. You've been at this company for a long time. You have the capital. You know, we'll trust you. It, it, it did hurt. It hurt his reputation pretty significantly. But he's like, you know, this is what I got to do. So he does it. And then the woman who messed up finds out that he did this. And she comes into his office one day. It's like, why did you do this? And the boss, the media exec, was like, I, you know, don't worry about it. It's just, just do better next time. Okay? Uh, and she's like, no, 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 I need to know. Because every job I've ever had before, the, my boss would always take credit for what I did, never take the blame for what I did. And she kept pressing him and pressing him and pressing him. And finally, he's like, okay, um, I'll tell you why, because you're just pestering me right now. And he says to her, I do this because I'm a Christian. And I'm not trying to show off by saying that. I do this because I'm a Christian, because Jesus took the hit for me using his power so that I might have life. And so I've decided I'm going to live like that for other people. Uh, and it transformed her. She actually said to him, I don't know what church you go to, but I need to know what church you go to. And then she started going to that church. Now, we don't know how long you know, she went to that church. You know, the story kind of ends there. But you see how powerful that is. Right? And now you're like, well, I'm not a media exec, I'm not a boss or anything like that. But you know, there's been studies that have shown even just being kind to a stranger can have a significant impact on their day. That's the kind of power that we wield as human beings, relationally. Uh, so, you know, again, there's a lot to chew on here, but, but I hope you would take this stuff to heart. How you use your power matters. And so we're going to actually go into the, um, the communion right now. Talk about a symbol of how God uses power, right? He, the infinite God, becomes finite and comes in the body of a human being so that he can be slaughtered by us so that we could have life. I pray that as you come to the table today, that that usage of power would mark itself indelibly on your heart. Okay, let me pray for the elements and then we will go into communion. Heavenly Father, we ask your spirit to be with us uh, in this moment, uh, these elements that you've given to us, the, the bread and the wine, Heavenly Father, um, they point to a deeper reality, which is your flesh and your blood. Uh, I pray that they would nourish us and remind us, uh, and your Holy Spirit would minister to us through them uh, of what you have done. Thank you so much, Father. We pray this in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.